One size fits all seemed like a good idea for clothes. Nice dress. Uh, it's a it's a T-shirt. Until you tried it on. Same goes for your health care. That's why United Healthcare offers a variety of flexible, budget-friendly coverage for medical, vision, dental, and more. So whether you're between jobs, coming off a parent's plan, or even missed open enrollment, you can find the plan that fits you best. Find out more about United Healthcare coverage at uh1.com. That's uh1.com. Many of us have those stubborn pounds that seem impossible to lose, no matter how good we eat or how hard we work out. My solution is Plush Care. PlushCare is a leading telehealth provider with doctors who are there for you day and night to partner with you in your weight loss journey. They can prescribe FDA-approved weight loss medications like Wagovi and Zepbound for those who qualify. Plus, they accept most insurance plans. To get started, visit plushcare.com slash weight loss. That's plushcare.com slash weight loss. Hello, this is Eat, Sleep, Work, Repeat. I'm Bruce Daisley. It's a podcast about making work better. Such a good episode for you today. A couple of brilliant interviews as you're trying to reimagine what work will look like. I think all of us are trying to get our heads around what lies ahead. First thing I'd ask you to do is go to the website and subscribe to the newsletter. There's so much changing in work right now. And the very fact that you're listening to this means you can be an agent for change in your organisation. And the newsletter each week gives you the best of the evidence, how work's transforming before our eyes, gives you pointers of what other companies are going to do, what other teams are doing to win, basically. Go to eatsleepworkrepeat.com and you'll find a link at the top of the page. A couple of people contacted me after last week saying, look, my boss has said to us, what should we do? And your newsletter has been really helpful for sort of making me look like I'm sort of in touch with what the big trends are. So I think you'll enjoy that. Go to eatsleepworkrepeat.com and there's a link at the top of the page. I'm really excited about what's in the next few episodes. My own passions are always about trying to learn what evidence there is, get the best out of work by listening to the experts. And I've got some fantastic interviews lined up. So later in this episode, you're going to hear from the front line how firms are changing their use of technology. And I'm going to be chatting to Adrienne Gormley, head of EMEA at Dropbox. But today's first discussion is going to be with Dr. Emma Cohen. She's Associate Professor in Cognitive Anthropology at Oxford University. I wanted to know specifically the way that humans have an impact on each other. And Dr. Cohen's research is mind-blowing. Along the way, she teaches you things well, that will potentially help you with your own exercise routine at the very least. There's a massive implication of one of the things she discusses. As I've been documented on the newsletter, there's a lot of importance right now in us understanding what we're going to lose with the ending of office culture. I chatted to a commercial property landlord last week. They said with the new social distancing rules, office occupancy will be 30 to 50% of what it used to be. And that will last till, till at least the middle of 2021. It means even if your firm's not looking to make big changes, there will be implications for at least the next 18 months. Any of us interested in workplace culture need to get our heads around these things. The one thing that was really intriguing for me, and we talk about it, is, is Dr. Cohen talked really about this thing called the self-other overlap. And it's effectively, when we're in certain situations, we... we we relegate feelings about ourselves and we feel part of something bigger than us. And it really chimed with me because if you've listened to the episode about Jurgen Klopp's culture at Liverpool, he talks about telling the team, he said, we need to go from me to we. And I thought, wow, that's like a, a much clearer expression, a sort of more simple expression of the self-other overlap. You're going to hear it, but it, for me, it was like a mind-blowing penny dropping. If we're going to make workplaces better right now, how can we ensure that it doesn't fit, just feel like it's about the self, it's about me? How can we ensure that in this weird time, we're making people feel part of a we, that we're making them feel connected to others? Really fascinating. So here's my discussion. This is uh, Associate Professor in Cognitive Anthropology at Oxford University. This is Dr. Emma Cohen. I became interested in your work because I saw the work that you did, which was, you said it was about 10 years ago now. It was studying the impact of 
being together, of being sort of in sync with each other, of rowers. And I became, I've told that research, I've explained it to people at least a hundred times. So I wonder if you could explain what the research actually was and, and what made you fascinated in that in the first instance? At the time, it was a, a research project with a student of mine and it was quite new territory for me. He was a good rower, interested in rowing. And it was a great opportunity to look at whether or not participating in exercise together gives people a higher high than if they do it by themselves. So these are quite elite level rowers. So they could get to quite a high level of performance and they could row for a long time. And that's what they typically did as part of their training. So we availed of that and just sort of piggybacked our study on their normal training. But we asked rowers to row either solo or in a group. So it's the same rowers, you call it a repeated measures design. We were taking the measures that we took on rowers when they rowed alone, um, but also as part of a group, all on machines. So it was in a gym environment, not on the river. Previous research suggests that this kind of exercise can give a sort of psychological high, positive sort of psychological emotions can come out of this. But we wondered whether the additive effect of social reward, if you like, so doing it with other people, could give a higher high because the same kinds of mechanisms involved in giving the psychological high in exercise, potentially the body's own cannabis system, the endocannabinoids or the opioidergic system, endorphins, have been implicated in social reward as well. So that's a little bit of the background and the method. And um, we measured pain threshold as a kind of indirect measure of the potential involvement of these systems because they're involved not just in social reward but also in modulation of the pain response. So we took their pain threshold measure using a blood pressure cuff before they exercised and they just sort of wrapped it around their non-dominant arm, pumped it up and asked them to feel it, tell us when, when they felt discomfort, rather than pain, because that could get a bit macho. So we took that measure before they exercised and then after they exercised. And so their pain threshold, the level at which they felt discomfort, increased significantly during the exercise when they did it individually, but it actually increased double the amount. So that same amount again when they did the exercise as part of a group of six effectively without setting out to do that by people feeling part of something or feeling connected with the people around them their capacity to withstand pain doubled we can just kind of call it a group effect the pain threshold measure was taken out of eyesight of the other participants so it's not the case that they you know they could sit around and sort of compare and there were possibly reputational effects from that but subsequent studies by other groups of researchers um, replicated the result and they found that it wasn't just about rowing as a group it was rowing in synchrony so by default our group condition was a synchronous rowing condition because that's just how they train but in another experiment these researchers manipulated synch synchrony so in there were two group conditions synchrony versus asynchrony and the solo and they found that the effect this kind of additive effect of potentially social reward was unique to the synchronous condition. So we think there might be something special about kind of being in tune with others. And you mentioned two systems in the body or the brain there. One you described as like the cannabis style mm. system and the other one is, is the opioid, is, is that right? Yeah. What, what are these two systems? What, how could they potentially have played a part in this? Well, they're involved in lots of different bodily functions, but there's a kind of a famous stereotype of the runner's high being down to opioids and endorphins being released in the body. And there are so, maybe... So, so endorphins are the body's... Yeah. Opioids. So you can, of course, take morphine, which is kind of an exogenous, so something outside the body that can affect pain mechanisms in the body. Um, but you have your own sort of internal pain modulation system that operates through endorphins. And other things besides, so I mentioned endocannabinoids as well. Um, so although endorphins have been implicated potentially in the runner's high, it's quite difficult to measure though, because you really want to get at the endorphin activity in the brain rather than just assay the blood. Endocannabinoids are a little easier to measure. And recent research has suggested that there may be endocannabinoid effects in participating in exercise as well. I think in your work, you went on, you looked at other effects of this on people exercising together and people feeling a social connection to other people that they're doing an activity alongside. Am I right in saying that you could observe that when people were running or training together, that their 
performance went up? Yeah. So in that study, I think my original motivation was to look at potential social reward, you know, the potential effects of social reward. Um, the pleasure and joy that we get out of interdependent, valued, meaningful social connections with other people. Wow. But there's another way in which that pain threshold um, might have hiked up, and that could be through perceiving um, not just those sort of joyous connections with teammates, but perceiving teammates as kind of a resource, like a, a signal of safety, a cue to available resources, because many of the resources that we obtain as individuals come via other people. Other people are extremely important to us, and they have been throughout our evolutionary history. We're extremely social, interdependent species. The research that we've done a bit more recently builds off of this. And, and at, at the time, the research, that particular rowing study got a lot of attention, but people wanted to know, okay, so if I work out with my mates, am I going to be able to go harder, faster, for longer? We kept the performance output equivalent across the individual and the social conditions and find this difference in pain threshold. So it, it would almost follow that we might find sort of performance limits being increased as well, given that pain mm. limits performance. Um, but we hadn't studied it yet. So we did go on and look at whether cues to social support and the actual presence of social support could influence pain, fatigue, performance and exercise. The first study manipulated synchrony in a simple warm-up. So this is a cue to already existing bonds. It was done with the rugby team here in Oxford and participants warmed up as they normally would with a teammate, either in synchrony or not. And then they performed uh, a really challenging sprint test that's sometimes part of the, the regular rugby training. And it would normally take around about four minutes. Um, but they managed to shave off, I think, about six and a half seconds from their normal time if they'd warmed up synchronously with a teammate just before versus non-synchronously with a teammate. So even though it was an individual task, they did it on their own, separately at opposite ends of the rugby field, this cue to social bonding seemed to affect their performance in a significant way, in a meaningful way, I think, for the athlete. Uh, it equated to about maybe 2.5% of the, of the asynchronous primed condition. So yeah, again, it looked like cues to social support are influencing performance outputs. What was really interesting about that study is that they didn't report significantly higher effort or fatigue and their maximum heart rate wasn't different either. So, yeah. so it's almost like if you see social support as a resource and your body's always in these kind of stressful contexts, well, every moment to moment, the body's always kind of maintaining and regulating it's homeostasis, the, the very thing that kind of gives it life <laughs> um, and sustains life. And it's always monitoring the internal conditions of the body and the resources that are available to sustain an activity, as well as the external conditions in that environment. And so our proposal, really, and our interpretation of this finding is that social support for humans is an extremely important resource. And it's probably been understudied in you know, sports performance and so on. But there were two really interesting things that come from that for me. So the social support being a really important part of us being able to withstand stress and the hardest things that happen to us. So, so like th the ability to withstand more seems to go up when we feel it in a state of social support. And then separately, what are the things that contribute to the building of that social support? So, for example, if people just feel part of a friendship group, would they feel that social support or do they need to be doing something alongside someone? And so like, just on the first of those things, the fact that social support almost invisibly improves our resilience, it improves our ability to withstand pain. It appears to improve our ability to not even notice pain to some extent. That's pretty remarkable finding I guess and and for me it's it's got a, a direct relevance because if increasingly people are in a workplace environment feeling less social support then maybe we're making them feel more fragile more less able to cope so I, I just think back to the stat that there was a, a stat in the UK last year that said that 42 percent of British workers don't have a single friend at work so that the absence of that workplace support might by extrapolation, 
make people feel less able to cope with the excesses of their job. Have I, got, have I gone too far with that? Or is, or no, you... I don't think so at all. And also, if it's not just a vacuum of support, but it's actually stress that's caused by difficult social relations, then you could find, you know, sort of a negative effect of that. Let's say you've got five or six people who kind of annoy you, <laughs> frustrate you, but you don't have one friend to help, you know, sort of give, provide you with that buffer against the stress that that's caused then that's a really difficult situation. I'd imagine that performance would go down. You know, it will affect your, your sense of control over the situation, your sense of your own kind of self-efficacy. Clearly, collective efficacy is probably you know, not even existent. So I think it's going to affect your performance. And there'll be lots of research to suggest in, outside of these sports contexts that social support is really important for stress and then all kind of the psychological, emotional, psychosocial, um, behavioral kind of outputs of that. But social support is also really important just for the even your prior appraisal of a potentially difficult situation. So there's a really nice study, again, maybe about 10 or 11 years ago, I think, that showed that when you have a, a friend, you perceive a potentially challenging situation to be easier than if you don't have a friend. And it was just a kind of lovely little opportunistic study done in a campus where they stopped people um, who were walking from one class to the other, I think, and... There was a hill, kind of steep bank, that they stood them in front of, put the rucksack on them as if, as if to say, you're going to climb up this hill. Now estimate the gradient of the hill. And if they had a friend with them versus they were going about solo on their own, they estimated the steepness of the hill to be much less steep. So they didn't actually have to climb the hill okay. then, but they were probably, you know, sort of extrapolate yeah. from that, that they might be more motivated to give it a bash. Okay. And maybe from that, they'll, you know, they'll self-regulate differently in terms of the potential outcomes of that activity. And when you're doing this work, how much do you just try and capture what you're seeing? And how much do you try and answer why or or, or how the sort of the causes of it? So is 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 it good work if you observe a phenomenon but you can't fully hypothesize why it's happening? We I think in this research I've I've worked on a bunch of other things that aren't connected to this at all. And so in some senses it's still quite early days. But it's all starting with a theory-driven hypothesis. Okay. But typically you want to just manipulate, most of this is experimental so far, so you want to manipulate something and see whether it produces the effects that you expect given the mechanism that you hypothesize to link the two things. And so some of the work is just manipulating something and measuring the effect. So manipulating group versus solo condition, measuring the effect on pain threshold. But that, even that, was a proxy for the thing that we hypothesized at the time to be involved, which was endorphins, maybe endocannabinoids. Whether that then produces social bonding effects, because endorphins are known to be implicated in social bonding, we didn't know from that particular study. So sort of proof of concept, and then you can dig a bit deeper. We did a study where we manipulated effort on the rowing machine. So it was two group conditions, and there was a moderate intensity rowing condition and a very low intensity rowing condition. And then we looked at cooperation in a sort of behavioral game. And we find that the moderate intensity condition led to a greater generosity in the game versus the low intensity condition. So the hypothesis in there that drove that study initially was based on that, the work I mentioned previously, that the endocannabinoid effect is limited to this kind of sweet spot right. of moderate intensity exercise. But we didn't measure endocannabinoids in that particular study. Can you measure them? Yeah, you can. Yeah. Um, I would need to team up with, you know, with other researchers on that. Which, which, yeah, we we're talking about. Yeah. We've put funding applications in. They've been okay. rejected. Yeah. So, but that would be the next step to kind of um, test that particular hypothesis. And tell me this then. So, so based on what you can see here, is anything that that triggers a surge in endorphins likely to achieve something close to this effect? So, the endocannabinoids are not endorphins, are they? No, different systems. Okay, okay. So is anything that triggers these, the surge in these things, and endocannabinoids? So, for example, back to the application of this for work, very unlikely that any of us will find ourselves doing company aerobics at 8.30 in the morning. But there might be other things that could trigger a sense of cohesion, whether that's an amusing team meeting or whether that's something deliberately cultivated to do these things. And would your work 
allow you to say that one could help the other? I, I think that would be too much of an extension from my work, but there's other work okay. um, that has used this same pain threshold measure as a proxy for maybe some of these kinds of um, mechanisms and found that, for example, singing, laughter, yeah. um, these kinds of activities can lead to higher pain thresholds and higher social bonding. And some some activities, it would seem, lead to quicker social bonding than other. So singing as opposed to a creative writing group um, or crafts group. Yeah, there are other activities for sure. Maybe even sharing a good meal together can lead to these kinds of effects. But there isn't sort of hard data showing endorphin effects specifically of these, okay. but there are proposals out there and research around those kinds of... But I wouldn't sort of... Um, Jack in the idea of a company aerobics. <laughs> I think that there are activities that are quite, if people buy into them, I guess, then they can be quite good tricks for manipulating those feelings of alignment, yeah. of being part of a unit together, of this thing known as self other overlap, which seems to occur on, when that? people synchronize together. Um, it's when you sort of, if you imagine like a rowing eight on the water, um, they're all like the really good ones. <laughs> they're in perfect synchrony, right? Synchrony makes the boat go faster. So it's something they'll really train at. And they talk about it almost in kind of the bonding effect that comes from that, this sense of their efforts being magnified and expanded by their teammates and this blurring between what they're doing and what other people are doing, the, the fact that you can't really reduce the overall kind of some of its parts to the parts, um, creates kind of these really kind of um, powerful effects. You know, they talk about it, the boat starts to swing, they can feel the lift off the water yeah. and so on. Um, so there's something, it seems quite special about, you know, synchrony in itself that could lead to self-other overlap, maybe something around the the difficulty levels that we talk, you know, about the, the level of exertion, but also this sense of that could never be achieved by oneself. It is integrally a collective phenomenon. And, you know, when you add in sort of competition and winning into the, into the mix, you know, sort of everyone invested and committed in that goal together and driving toward that goal together and only then achieving it because they work together, this seems to create a very... Um, powerful sense of interdependence and interdependence if you think about it, evolutionarily this kind of mutual reliance on on each other as part of a, a communal group a community is really where bonding all began so you can manipulate bonding through these kinds of joint actions that are very visceral very physical by virtue of some very powerful feelings that I don't think we really understand very well yeah. yet I saw, reductively, you were talking about um, the way that young children bond and the importance of not only physical activity, which we've covered here, but touch as a way to, I guess, break down that, what did you call it, me, other? Self-other, self yeah. Other. So you get this self-other overlap, sort of others in your kind of self-space. So, so is that unique to kids that need to touch other people to be reminded that they are other or is or, or is that a human thing it's i mean it's not just a human thing um yeah, yeah so yeah. it may have its origins you know in in primate grooming which is is quite clearly associated with friendship i think we can call it friendship in non-human primates um so essentially sort of stroking and Mm. A bit like nitpicking, yeah, and, just yeah. that. Um, and so yeah, we see kinds of all kinds of um, outgrowth of that sort of grooming mechanism. Maybe even massage and a, a, a kind of an affectionate stroke on the arm when someone's feeling a bit down, hugs and so on. Yeah. Right? So so yeah, it's definitely not limited to to children. It's an extremely important part of um, mother infant yeah, bonding absolutely. and 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 well being for and health for even infants and mothers. Um, so it's not limited to children, but yeah, we, we, this is another mechanism that has been implicated in social bonding elsewhere. And so we thought we'd, we'd look at it on the playground along with physical activity. Um, and so we found that kids who were engaged in moderate to vigorous physical activity on the playground engaged in more touch behavior and also more laughing and smiling behavior. But whether that 
touch behavior indexes or produces stronger social bonds, we couldn't really measure just through observing kids in the playground. It's so fascinating because it just reminds us more than anything, I think, the vast of animalistic origins that sometimes we might believe that everything is rational and intelligent and we're bonded because we sat together and we discussed things or we bond together. But it seems that there's something far more visceral that runs through us that at times can really activate a connection yeah. to others. Yeah, absolutely. We, we tend to think, you know, when we think about the things that sort of set us apart from other species... And we talk about things like complex culture or culture that's, that's cumulative. You know, we build on the inventions of previous generations to create, you know, really complex technologies and so on. It's all very kind of um, a, a kind of brainy intelligence, mm. individuals almost kind of working on problems, um, using their intellect um, rather than their feelings and drives. Um, feelings are an expression of your bodily state at any one time. You can't really separate feelings from the body and they are drivers of behavior, uh, motivators of behavior. They kind of monitor our situation and, and sort of drive our behavior. Yeah, so we can't really ignore them in understanding what makes us human, but we often do, right? We often kind of see feelings as kind of our, almost like our animalistic side or something and then our intellect as our much more kind of human side that should be esteemed and studied and that's why you know a lot of the stuff we look at is actually at this very visceral kind of beneath the surface sort of unobvious social bonding mechanisms so I, I kind of enjoy revealing those because I think they're extremely powerful but underestimated in the research so we can talk about friendships as you know people who share similar tastes or share their secrets or you know this kind of very sort of high level <laughs> cognitive, social cognitive activity, but we can also talk about it in, just in terms of, you know, what, what is that kind of funny thing that happens when you're walking down the street and you find yourself in step with someone next to you and you're sort of marching together. It's something weird, just something weird happens and it might leave you a bit uncomfortable. Why does that happen? Is it kind of forcing a connection that you hadn't really looked for and why would that connection arise you know, so it's a it's an interpersonal. So it's not just a bodily thing. It's an interpersonal bodily thing that has mental and emotional, right, cognitive effects. I love this as an idea. I, I read a book a couple of years ago by a guy called William McNeil. It's an old book. It's called Keeping Together in Time, and it's about dance and drill. And it talks about how the fact that armies through history have always used marching as a means of make, building sort of team cohesion, really, building sort of troop cohesion. And the interesting thing is that since 1850, marching has been completely irrelevant to military deployment. It's just, it's not something that's broadly used in tactics, but it's been preserved by the military as a means of sort of keeping this cohesion, keeping this bond amongst troops. Really fascinating. Anyway, what Emma's saying here, what Dr. Cohen's saying here, it's the first time I've heard the inverse, that actually when you find yourself marching in lock, lockstep with a stranger, it feels like this connection. It feels there's something in it that makes it feel either uh, connecting you with them or feel deeply weird. Fascinating. So in some contexts, perhaps that self-other overlap, this sense that, you know, someone gets cl feels closer and closer to you, that they're actually sort of part of yourself and by virtue of being part of yourself, well, if you love yourself, you love that person. That's, that's one interpretation of self-other overlap. But in that context of the military, perhaps it operates more by a, a levelling function. So, you know, everyone's in the same uniform doing exactly the same thing. So no matter kind of who you are in the outside world, in that, time and in that context it's a very egalitarian mm. kind of scene um so it can maybe have it, it 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 makes people more similar to us and we feel typically that we can coordinate more successfully with people who are more similar to us there's this preference socially generally for people who are more similar to us called a homophily bias um and so maybe it's manipulating that in the context of of marching um and that levelling that comes as a consequence of that um, could help people feel more connected to others. But the other thing it does in that context potentially, and there are other studies have shown that people who perform the same activity at the same time can also, as a group, can look more formidable than when they're kind of out of sync mm -hmm. 
with each other. Mm. That sort of kind of reminded me of the the rugby hacker that the New Zealand mm. All Blacks do. They look so formidable mm. when they do that. It, you kind of when I start watching, I kind of think it's a bit of fun, and then by the end, you're a bit sort of. <sighs> I don't know, slightly overwhelmed by it. Or even when you watch dancers, and if there's a lot of dancers who coordinate it, it looks mesmerising. It's just captivating that that number of people can do something yeah. so as one. Yeah, yeah. I think I think as a participant then that creates quite special effects mm. um, because especially when it's something that's quite technically challenging. And so that's another thing that we've looked at in our research is, you know, People often talk about something like a team click, you know, that thing I talked about in the rowing eight, you know, or, or even a rugby scrum where your efforts are magnified by those around you. Um, when you when it works, that sort of success in joint action, um, where there are lots of moving parts and you only have so much control, even over what you yourself can do, never mind what other individuals are doing, but you've got this technical challenge and potentially high stakes goals to achieve. Um, when you go into that situation not knowing if you're going to pull it off um, and when you do um, our proposal there is that that generates this sense of team click so we didn't know you know we couldn't have have known for sure that this coordination was going to be successful um, but the f you know when you measure among rugby players for example the on-field coordination between players and their um, reports of how they performed relative to their expectations. We find that this leads to higher feelings of oneness with others, um, their sense of reliability on others, that others could rely on them. All these components that we think sort of phenomenologically kind of go into f this feeling of team click. And there's very early days for this, this work as well. That also then links to social bonding. Wow, what a wonderful dis discussion. As I said at the outset, that thing that that Jurgen Klopp said about we need to go from me to we, that seems to be identical to this self-other overlap. This idea that when we can make people aware that there's something more than them, it seems to help. Now, look, there's something really interesting in this. These, um, you occasionally hear discussions, I, I sort of read of, I've read a lot, about vitamin N. Vitamin N is this weird effect that nature has on us. So when we're out in nature, it seems to, I think more than anything, remind of a, us of our own insignificance. And so when we're out in nature, we're focused on the world around us. You know, we see how tiny we are in, in the vastness of the world. And it's nature, vitamin N, sin, seems to have this impact of reducing the importance of self. Seem to be a synchrony of ideas here. The more that we can make people feel that they're part of something bigger than themselves, yes, absolutely, that in this new world of work, they're getting loads of work done, they're working remotely, but the most successful organisations are going to be the ones that think about how we can feel part of something bigger than ourselves. And the art is working out how we do that. I'm going to be looking at this more in the next few episodes. I'm going to be looking at other ways that we can forge this connection. And I'm also going to be delving into some of the neuroscience of it. Next up after the break, there's a brilliant discussion with what's happening right now in work with the EMEA bus of Dropbox. Hiring for your small business? If you're not looking for professionals on LinkedIn, you're looking in the wrong place. That's like looking for your car keys in a fish tank. LinkedIn helps you hire professionals you can't find anywhere else, even those who aren't actively searching for a new job but might be open to the perfect role. In a given month, over 70% of LinkedIn users don't even visit other leading job sites. So start looking in the right place. With LinkedIn, you can hire professionals like a professional. Post your free job on linkedin.com people today. This is Paige, the co-host of Giggly Squad, and I want to tell you about a company that I've been loving, Olive and June. Olive and June gives you everything that you need for a salon-quality manicure in one box. And if you break it down, it really comes out to $2 a manicure, which 
is absolutely insane. It's also so easy to get salon-worthy nails at home with Olive and June. The difference between how your nails used to look when you did them yourself and now with the Manny system is a complete game changer. The best thing about Olive and June, too, is it's a quick dry. Dries in about one minute, lasts for five days, and full coverage in up to one to two coats. Visit oliveandjune.com slash perfectmanny20 for 20% off your first system. That's oliveandjune.com slash perfectmanny20 for 20% off your first system. Millions of people have lost weight with personalized plans from Noom, like Evan, who can't stand salads and still lost 50 pounds. Salads generally for most people are the easy button, right? For me, that wasn't an option. I never really was a salad guy. That's just not who I am. But Noom worked for me. Get your personalized plan today at Noom.com. Real Noom user compensated to provide their story. In four weeks, the typical Noom user can expect to lose one to two pounds per week. Individual results may vary. Well, as I was thinking about the way that work's been changing, I was thinking, I wonder what trends we're actually seeing. I wonder what usage is already going on. I was really intrigued. I contacted uh, Dropbox. I wanted to hear what trends that they were observing, how the, the world of work sort of transforming before our very eyes. I spoke to Adrian Gormley. She leads customer experience globally for Dropbox, but she also runs the teams across Europe, Middle East and Africa. Dropbox is clearly working very closely with firms who are sort of moving their whole business and all their storage and their, the way they're working to the cloud. So I wanted to understand what trends that they're seeing People have told me, for example, that the impact of lockdown has mainly been to accelerate the trends that were already happening. I, I think that's absolutely right. I think we we have certainly seen, and, and indeed internally in Dropbox, we're, we're probably set up to some degree for some of these trends. So certainly moving to the cloud uh, has been a trend for, for a number of years. And I think we've seen a lot of companies who completely born on the cloud and born on the internet uh, and do everything on, on the cloud. And I think there are many businesses that have had to pivot to that um, because of COVID. And so that is one trend that has absolutely accelerated quite magically in many ways from a Friday to a Monday. Companies have needed to, to move online. I think a second trend is this idea of flexible working, working from home, being more adaptable in terms of working hours in order, and many companies treat it as a benefit to try and, and, and capture talent. Again, I think we've seen that uh, completely accelerate. Um, businesses had obviously no choice for, for many of knowledge workers, certainly, but to, to have a work from home and a distributed workforce model. So, so that is absolutely, it hasn't even accelerated. It has just gone from one end of the spectrum to the other in a very short period of time. Now, I'm, I, we can discuss that. I'm sure that'll, that'll go back to some degree, but, but the trend has definitely accelerated. That's interesting. I wanted to know what a Dropbox doing with their own employees. Obviously, in response to lockdown, we were actually ahead of, of lockdown. We agreed to work from home globally across all of our offices from early March. We've been in that lockdown ever since. The initial, I suppose, month and six weeks were making sure everybody was set up to work from home, that everybody had the flexibility to deal with all the other pressures that were on us. I think this is a rather hot-housed, pressured work-from-home experiment that we're in. Most of us don't normally have to homeschool, cook dinners, do video conferences all at the same time. So I think we've had a lot of consideration to make sure people have been able to find their balance during this time. And I think for the future, as we're kind of in this mid-phase, we've polled and asked our employees what do they want in the future? And how should we be thinking about this? Not just from an immediate return to work or return to the office, because that's obviously something we need to do in the midterm. But in the longer term, what are people open to? And interestingly, within Dropbox, and, and I think this is the case in many other studies that I've read, there's a very small percentage that actually want to work from home permanently. And there's a very small percentage that want to be go back to exactly how it was in the past. And the vast majority want some kind of flexible way of work, partly in the office, partly at home, partly suiting their hours and their balance at home and the things they need to, to get on with from the life perspective. And um, so it's been really, really interesting. And we're only starting to dig into that data. What does Adrian think is going to sustain? 
the vast majority, but not everyone, will look for some hybrid of both. So I think from all the people that I speak to uh, across the region here in, in Europe, Middle East, Africa, and across my global teams, and then in the external business context, a lot of people are finding that when they don't have their kids crawling all over them or the dog barking, they can actually get a lot of productive work done and have time for headspace and the mental capacity to do a focused piece of work. It can be very useful to be at home where you're not interrupted with colleagues around. A lot of, of us are in open plan spaces and maybe don't have that peace and quiet that you can get um, if you have the, the, the right setup at home. I think people would like to be able to have days when they can work from home and do that. Or even there's days when the plumber needs to come or the electrician needs to come and you need to be able to continue to do your work. But then I do think the vast majority of us are also missing that interaction of, you know, the water cooler, the having a chat over lunch, over coffee and brainstorming. And I think that's one of the areas that has probably been the hardest to adjust for. Interesting. I wonder what the Dropbox perspective is of what's going to happen in five years. There could be a mixture of both. I have to believe that trend, as we talked about at the start of nine to five, you need to be in the office. That trend had started. I think COVID has accelerated it. And, and I think that will continue to be questioned. Is nine to five exactly what we need in the future? Can we allow the flexibility that many people will look for? And can we also think about now that we have are starting to develop the muscles and skills for working remotely, can we start to think differently and strategically about the type of talent pools that could be open if we were to set up as businesses? Can we tap into people in other parts of the country? Can we tap into different demographics, maybe part-time work and so on could be wide open if we think of that. So I think that will be a blend. The other thing that, again, for me would be very welcome is an end to the presenteeism of if you're not in front of me doing the work, then I don't know how I can manage you and I don't know how you're producing your results. For me, I think about output management and most of my team are not in the same location as me. So I have no idea when my team in Sydney is in the office. I have no idea how much time they spend on Facebook. And, and frankly, I don't spend any time thinking about that either. We lay out our objectives and our goals, and then our conversations are much more around how are things progressing to those goals? Um, how can I help? Where are they getting blocked? Where are they making faster progress? And the conversation is much more about that than, than what time they got into the office at or were they 10 minutes late back from lunch. I was interested. Have Dropbox changed anything in terms of the way they're using technology or are they still in the learning stage? I, I think some some of our teams are, are maybe further down than, than others. So because my team has been global for a long time, cognitively, mentally, and from a leadership perspective, I've probably found COVID easier because we're already working to some degree asynchronously. Having teams in Sydney, in Europe, in, in San Francisco means that, that there's always somebody asleep. Um, and so, you know, you never have one meeting with everybody, uh, uh, everybody there. And I, I see from a time zone perspective, the, 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 we've been able to, to kind of extend our working day. So I, I reframe the, what is traditionally a problem of time zones into a longer working day where I can hand something off to the team in San Francisco. They can hand it off to Sydney and, and, and we can actually make a lot of progress asynchronously. And, and we obviously use, use our own products, uh, Dropbox for that. We use Dropbox paper. Um, we use our, our Dropbox spaces where we can work on specific projects and hand over and make comments and so on on the things that we need to do. And it's a different muscle um, and it's a different set of skills, but, but we've really built that out. And it has stood to us in times of COVID because uh, right now, even though there may be a group of people in the same time zone, they may have different calls on their time. For example, they're homeschooling children or they're, they're care, caregivers elsewhere, and they're not available for the one meeting where the, everything gets decided. And so you, you bring in that asynchronicity in terms of how you work. And, and over the course of a day, people can give their input and their, their feedback. And frankly, I found it a lot more inclusive for for individuals. Um, 
because everybody has time to be able to process what they think and give their feedback and input. Um, for me, we, we've had an even greater sort of diversity of perspectives on some of the decisions we've made. So I found it very, very helpful. I was really interested. Are there any firms that Dropbox are looking at thinking that they're the pioneers in the field? Are any commentators that Adrian turns to? I, I mean, th- there has there has been a lot that's been impressive in in uh, in, in the last number of of months, and and uh, I think I have looked at almost I- industries as a whole. If if I think of it, the very obvious is is healthcare, and in terms of how health systems have had to pivot um, and make decisions that would have and could have taken years um, uh, in order to push through, uh, I, I think has been tremendous. I have to say education and, and both from a, a Dropbox perspective, we, we've seen um, a massive pivot uh, from our, our customers in the education industry. And, and then as, as, as a mother looking at my, my daughter pivoting to, to online learning, if you think about um, if you had said at Christmas that every education system in, in, in every country will be moved online in six months, we, we wouldn't have just laughed. We would have just said, you know, absolutely never happening. And, and there it did in six weeks or in a month or, in a, you know, each school had their own variation of it. But children and students across all of the countries have pivoted to, to some kind of online education. Now, I'm not saying it's perfect and I'm not saying we should 100 percent stick to it. But the ability of us to adapt and be agile when we really need to um, has has been very, very impressive. Um, and I think the other the other area that I, I would love to see how we 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 learn uh, from a tech perspective uh, uh, as well is how the science community has come together to try and solve this problem. And they have not let um, either universities or geographies or politics or anything else stand in the way of collaboration. There's been a lot of open source sharing, um, you know, going back to, to what COVID even looked like, um, right through to the types of trials, the types of things that are working. Um, it is, I'm not sure there's ever been an example of such collaboration um, across the scientific community. And I think we're facing a number of other problems across the world where that kind of collaboration at speed would would be hugely beneficial. One of the things I've been really interested in is are companies going to talk right now about reducing their office size? What are Dropbox thinking about that? I certainly, I certainly don't think we're we're looking with any decisions on reducing uh, office sizes or or anything like that. I. I in the in the short to medium term, of course, we're we're looking at office space in terms of uh, how you make sure health and safety is the top priority as we we look to to reopen. Um, we've always had a, an office culture where we have spaces for creativity, we have desks, we have space for for um, cafes and and spaces to sort of work on, on your own. And so we've always had um, quite a generous way in terms of how our space is allocated um, and, and that's a big part of our, our culture and our, our ethos. Um, I think as we dig into the, the data in terms of how do we want to, to, to work in, in, the, in the, the mid to longer term, um, I'm sure you know, our real estate will play a part in, in how that works and, and how we, we continue to, to keep the culture. But, but we very much see our, our offices as still a very key part of, of what we do and how we do it. It's hard not to lose yourself in a bit of imagining. I wonder what's going to change about aspects of our life. I wonder how we're going to evolve to a new normal. Most of our workforce gets around on public transport uh, across the globe. Uh, driving is not, uh, is, most of us do not drive uh, into the offices. And so, you know, I've been part of workforces that are thinking about how how do we how do we do cycling? How can our city centres better enable cyclists? How do we get legislation fast tracked for things like e scooters and and um you know what kind of what what adjustments would we need to make to make sure there were enough bike racks that there were enough scooter plugs that there were you know different ways that that people can travel um in a way that that doesn't just take a health and safety box uh, from COVID, but is also sustainable, um, which is another slower burn in terms of, although 
probably even more urgent. Um, but but hopefully we can learn lessons from COVID in terms of our ability to move fast when we really want to and make changes for for, for the, the positive. Obviously, this is big disruption. Have they seen big increases in usage of cloud technologies in Dropbox? Um yeah, we, 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 we do. And, and certainly, um, we, we, we have, when the first lockdowns began, we, we saw a lot of customers asking us for guidance on how to, to get the, 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 the most value and maximize their usage of, of Dropbox. Um, we've seen a, a massive increase in, in our products. So our, our, you know, in the UK, our business product, we saw a growth of 45% in, in, uh, people trialing the product. Um, and then not just uh, moving to cloud, but also thinking about collaboration and moving workflows. Our, our HelloSign, our e-signatory um, product, that was 3x usage um, following the COVID lockdown. And that tells me a couple of things. One, obviously, as I said before, a lot more people needing to move to the clouds and looking for the tools that are easiest to use, that, that allow them to get on with the work that they need to do. But also that they're um, we're, we're moving uh, workflows and and business processes uh, online and into the cloud, and and that will likely um, be a more permanent move than just hey we've got to use Zoom for for these calls and once we're all back in the office we can we can stop using Zoom. There there is a fundamental shift, and we have certainly seen that with with our with our uh, products and services. Brilliant insight. More than anything, I wanted to chat to one of the firms at the front line and Dropbox most definitely uh, right at the cutting edge there. Thank you so much to their well, their customer experience lead, Adrian Gormley, and she runs Dropbox across Europe, Middle East and Africa. She's based in Dublin. Hope you've enjoyed today's episode. Some real thought, food for thought. If you are interested in these themes, please do go through the old episodes, eatsleepworkrepeat.com. Like I say, you can sign up to the newsletter there. That's the place right now that I'm really trying to capture this moment that we're in, trying to capture the the experience, the learning. So uh, sign up to the newsletter and you'll get that. Next up, I'm going to be looking a little bit more into this impact that we seem to have on each other and some of the evidence of that. Thank you for listening. I'm getting so many emails and communications from, from people who are sharing what their firm are doing. Please do get in touch. You know, the best ones I'll put on the newsletter for sure. I've been Bruce Daisley. See you next time. Luxury quality within reach. Go to quince.com slash style to get free shipping and 365 day returns on your next order. Quince.com slash style. Mom deserves the best and there's no better place to shop for Mother's Day than Whole Foods Market. They're your destination for unbeatable savings. From premium gifts to show-stopping flowers and irresistible desserts. Start by saving 33% with Prime on all body care and candles. Then get a 15-stem bunch of tulips for just $9.99 each with Prime. Round out mom's menu with festive rosé, irresistible berry chantilly cake, and more special treats. Come celebrate Mother's Day at Whole Foods Market. 